Good morning, church. We're in John chapter 8. Once again, I'll be reading from verse 21 through 30. John 8, 21 says, Then Jesus said to them again, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Because he says, Where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, You are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Then they said to him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, Just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world world, those things which I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. Now, um, we've been in studying John now for eight months, so by now you're, you're seeing the big themes, the repeated topics coming together, and I hope you're seeing the big picture of John by now, that this is a book uh, about belief, that this is a book written so that you may believe and so, um, as, we, as we study the Word of God, uh, like we do every Sunday morning, um, we want to be sure that we're, we're leaning forward towards the God who gives us faith. Um, that we're, we're looking at these verses and these words with the hope that God would uh, see that we believe, but that He would also help our unbelief, as my favorite prayer in the Bible goes. Um, so let's pray for our time. Pray for yourselves. Pray for the others uh, watching this, however they're... they're um, receiving this sermon, uh, that God would increase our faith through this passage. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your church. I thank you that that I get a place in it. Um, I I pray for each one uh, watching this sermon, listening to this sermon, that your word would speak clearly to them in truth and power, uh, that that, that your words here in the Gospel of John would have their full effect, um, that you... uh, being a God who, who rescues, who saves, and who declares the Father to us, um, would be actively involved in all of those things, um, that you would commission your church even through this passage to better declare uh, the, the humble God, the God who humbled himself, um, that you would uh, equip us and enable us to better declare to a dying world, a world dying in its sins, that, that you have come to save us. So bless us, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. So in in John, uh, what you've probably noticed by now as we've studied through this is that there are things that John puts into focus that the other Gospels just kind of gloss over, don't pick up. Uh, In John, one of the things that we've seen over and over and over again is the importance and the power of belief. John is the gospel about believing in Jesus, which is why many times a, a new believer will be pointed towards the gospel of John uh, for the, their, the first book of the Bible that they read. Many pastors will direct new believers to John because it's the gospel about believing in Jesus. But John is also not one to sugarcoat anything. We've seen that, that John 
It is also a gospel about the dangers of unbelief. Uh, a lot of the gospel of John is a warning. A line has been drawn in the sand. Jesus tells it like it is, and he gives very clear warnings in uh, this gospel about what happens when you're not with him. And uh, the argument then develops into showing the church how important it is to declare the crucified Lord to a world that is dying in its sense. Now, when you've got a very clear line, uh, you've got a very clear good versus evil sort of division drawn in this gospel. Belief is on one side and unbelief is on the other. But another way to draw that line would simply be between heaven and earth, above and below. Jesus is up here, bad guys down here. We've seen Jesus uh, many times say like, I am of my father. And then later in John, we'll see you are of your father, the devil. Um, we've seen this already many times in John as recently as chapter 7 when his brothers were encouraging him to go show himself to the crowds in Jerusalem, even though they knew that there were people there that wanted to kill him. And so Jesus tells them, my time has not yet come, but your time, but it's always your time is essentially what he said. And when I, when I taught that passage, when we studied that passage together, uh, I tried to show you that Jesus was saying, you're of this world. I'm not of this world. And he's been drawing that line throughout this whole, throughout his whole ministry. He is constantly reminding people that he's not from these parts, that he's not like them, that he is of a different spirit, that he has different origins, that he's of a different family. And now this is interesting because John has one of the most famous verses in scripture about Jesus also being with us and becoming like us and dwelling among us. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the, the gospel obviously is an account of what it's like to, uh, to have Jesus be with people. But this is what it's like having Jesus with you. He will always be reminding you of what is above and what is beyond and what is better. He, he's extremely close. He is extremely personal. He is near to the humble. He's, he's near to the brokenhearted. You know, as we saw at the beginning of this chapter in John 8, he's the one who is prone to stoop. He humbles himself. But then what? Then he lifts us up, directs our eyes to what is above, and, and says, go and sin no more. He commissions us. And he reminds us that God is above. He's higher and greater and more glorious. You know, there, there are two characteristics of God that are seen in tandem here, and John tackles them both throughout his gospel. It's, it's the, the imminence of God and the transcendence of God. The imminence of God is his closeness. This is what Paul says in, in Acts 17, verse 27. He says, you know, so that they should seek the Lord in the, in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. He's not far from each one of us. That's the idea of God being close. The, the idea that God is not far from each one, that he's, he's near as your next breath. This is the idea of God's eminence, his closeness. God is near. But then there's his transcendence. That's the idea that God is far above and beyond all we could imagine. His ways are higher than our ways. God inhabits eternity, a concept that by itself just blows our minds. He is infinite, immutable, eternal, omnipotent, omnipotent all those things that, that will never be. 
and he is exalted above all the earth. That aboveness is his transcendence. Now, many world religions and cults have one of these two ideas, usually at the expense of the other. A pantheist, that would be one who believes that everything is God, or a panentheist who believes that God is in everything, slightly different, or are, are really focusing on the imminence of God. He's close, he's always at hand, uh, you can't get away from him. Psalm 139 says, you know, where can I go from your spirit? But a deist, on the other hand, would believe that, yes, God exists and he's out there. He, they would believe in the transcendence of God. He is, he is big and intelligent and smart and creative. Um, but he's not interested in this world or your needs or the outcome of your life. He's transcendent but not imminent. As with, the, with any opposites, the pendulum shifts even within the church. There have been phases of church history that have focused on the greatness and holiness and otherness of God, but lacked any intimacy and closeness or personal relationship. And there have been phases and eras where the imminence of God is, is embraced at the price of his transcendence, where God has been viewed as buddy and friend, who is always there when you need him, but he has lacked, the, you know, the, the church has lacked the reverence and the real idea that God is the high and exalted one who demands allegiance. Now, I know we haven't even started looking at the passage yet, really, but I promise there's a connection. Uh, in this passage that we've been looking at today, Jesus continues in this vein of dividing between earth and heaven. But we see that Jesus is also the union between earth and heaven. Jesus continues in this, this, this vein of division, his ways, their ways, belief, unbelief, heaven, earth. And it's pretty cool to notice that Jesus of Nazareth, the Word made flesh, is speaking in human language to these people who hate him about heaven and hell and faith and righteousness and unbelief. And, and that's an intimacy with Jesus that these, these bad guys are privileged uh, to, to enjoy, really, if they have faith to, to enjoy it, that many believers would be envious of. You know, the incarnation is the clearest example of the imminence of a transcendent God. The Word, the eternal Word, has dwelt among us. He is close to these people, and he's close to us. But he's telling them, straight to their faces, I am so out of your reach. I'm so beyond you. John 1.14, which we read, it says, the word dwelt among us, and that's eminence. But it goes on to say, we beheld his glory. Glory speaks of transcendence. Now we're going to take this passage verse by verse like we always do, but I want you to see that Jesus perfectly embodies these two truths uh, about God, and as he does in so many ways, he provides a, a bridge for us to cross and understand both sides of an issue. And, and as we've continually seen through the Gospel of John, our experience with that bridge is faith. That's how we interact with Jesus who bridges heaven and earth through faith. The way we experience an imminent and transcendent God is through the walk of faith, through following Jesus in belief. So let's look at the text again. The first verse here in our passage, then Jesus said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. And these are some harsh words from Jesus. But you can see the repeated theme again. I'm not of this world. We are different, you and I. But he's saying a lot more in this short, short verse. He says that he's leaving. He won't always be there. 
Now, he would tell his disciples this in a somewhat of a, of a comforting way later. We'll read that in John. But now he's telling his enemies, he's telling Pharisees and the leaders of the Jews that, are, that want him dead, and he's telling them, I'm not always going to be here. And this, this would take the tone less of comfort, uh, or, uh, but, but more of, of warning. Um, and, and he's prophesying, of course, of, of his ascension, his, his leaving earth. He always says, uh, you will... Uh, he also says, you will seek me. Now, that's an interesting thing for people who are wanting to kill Jesus, right? But the fact is, they were they were trying to find him. Um, not to worship, necessarily, uh, but to kill, or at least discredit. You know, uh, kind of reminds you of King Herod, telling the Magi, when you find him, you know, tell me so I can go and worship him too. But really, he wanted to put him to death. There were those who were seeking Jesus, but not with the heart of worship. They were seeking him in order to destroy him. And Jesus is saying, once I'm gone, you won't be able to do that anymore. Where I'm going, you can't come. I'll be far from you. Now, this is clearly a, a damning statement. God is saying to these men, where I go, you cannot come. There is a gulf fixed between the two of us. Uh, and this is essentially how most Christians define hell, separation from God. To be torn from his presence is the worst thing that can happen to a person. And Jesus says this is essentially uh, what is going to happen to those who die in their sins. The one who dies in his sins without those sins being dealt with by faith in Jesus Christ, is destined for that separation from God. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And this, of course, is what every Christian believes, that we are doomed by our sins, that we were born into sin, and then we went downhill from there, that there is a gulf fixed between where Jesus is and where we are headed. And we, we cannot just decide to get up and go to where he is. We can't do it. And this is the bad news of the good news. You know, the gospel means good news, um, but it's good news that follows a bit of bad news, that we're lost and in need of a Savior. But I want to show you just how lost and confused we can be. Look at the next verse, verse 22. It says, So the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Because he says, Where I go, you cannot come? Now, that's pretty remarkable uh, for a number of reasons. First, if they are able to completely just jump over the fact that Jesus said, You are going to die in your sins. They, that's a very clear warning that should have you know, caught their attention where they say, wait, what? What are you saying I'm going to die in? Are you, you're saying, I'm, what's going to happen to me? They don't ask any of those questions. They just don't even hear that part. And they heard the part where he said, I'm going where you cannot come. And they, they jumped to the conclusion that he's going to kill himself. It's, it, the, Jesus says, I'm going where you can't come. We know he means heaven. Jesus is going to heaven. You know what they assume he means? Hell. If they were thinking of something heavenly, paradisal, then surely they would be following him after death because they think they're all that and they're, of course, going to go to heaven when they die because they're the best people that have ever lived. They think Jesus is going to the other place. Now, aside from that big swing and a miss from the Pharisees, there's something else we've got to address here. And it doesn't really come up in very many verse-by-verse -verse studies, so you, you take the chance when you, you get it. But they are saying that Jesus is going to commit suicide. And the assumption here that you read, you know, if he's going to commit suicide, which means they can't follow him, they don't think he's going to heaven. So they are, they are indicating that if Jesus kills himself, then he would go straight to hell. Now, that was a big jump in their thoughts. How they got there was not a natural route to take. 
But this issue of suicide is important and must be addressed. People have questions about this. And there is a persistent belief, both in the church and out of it, that has, you know, existed probably at least since these Pharisees. There's the, the false belief that, that is, that when a person takes their own life, they are automatically damned. That they automatically go to hell. That, that belief exists within the church, though I don't know of any church or creed that actually teaches this. But suicide is murder. That's true. The life you have is not your own. You didn't make it. You didn't buy it. It's not yours. Murder is a sin, plain and simple. But having your last act in this life be a sinful one does not then necessarily mean it is the final word on the condition of your soul. Suicide is murder, but murders can be forgiven. Murderers are often forgiven. This isn't the topic of the text, of course, in John, but since the topic comes up in the peripheral, so to speak, this is a good, a good a time to address it as any. The Pharisees begin to think that Jesus is suicidal, and they assume then that obviously he would go to Hades. And that's another Pharisaic, Pharisaical doctrine that has existed in the church, unfortunately, even though that is not what the Bible teaches. And it, this shows how, how the Pharisees thought, and it also shows how little they knew about Jesus. Jesus picks up on what they're hinting at, and he responds in verse 23. He said to them, You are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So he realized, you missed the important part of what I was saying, which was warning you that you are doomed. And they skip that and they ask a question about this other thing. They're thinking, well, maybe Jesus is crazy. Maybe he's going to kill himself. And so he repeats this twice more. You are going to die. Everyone does it. And if you die and your soul is in its, in, in its current state, with, uh, with the stains of sin, unforgiven, unredeemed, it, that's a bad thing. You're going to die in your sins. And when he says, you are from beneath, he's taking what they said to themselves, right? Oh, is he going to die? Then he's, he's going to go to the grave? Is he going below to that other place? He's turning that on its head. They think, we're from above. Jesus, this crazy guy... You know, he's from beneath. We're high and exalted Pharisees. And if he's going somewhere that we can't go, well, the only place I think that he could go that I couldn't would be hell. So he's so far beneath us. And Jesus challenges this thinking. He reads their minds. And he says, no, no, no. You're the ones from beneath. You are from below. I am from above. And then he clarifies what beneath he's talking about. He says, you are of this world. I am not of this world. Now, saying that the realm therein is of this world softens the blow a little bit because the obvious place your mind would go, probably in the context, would be somewhere below the earth. That's sort of where the argument is headed. And you know what? At other times, Jesus does go there. Later in this chapter, we'll deal with this next week, he says, you are of your father, the devil. So he's, he's, but he's not quite going that far right now. He says, you are of this world. I am not of this world. The Pharisees were right in assuming that they were headed for two different destinations, but not as they thought. Something we see in Jesus' ministry is the dividing line that I've been mentioning. He is always discerning. He is always cutting, dividing between his word, his world, and the rest. Between his way and the rest. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's a line in the sand. That's a division. He consistently says, I am not of the same stock as you. We are not cut from the same cloth. I am from above, you are from below. 
And, and I think this is really important, especially in the Gospel of John, where it began with the beautiful truth about the eternal Word, who is God, coming and dwelling with us. It's both of these truths holding hands. The only way that, you know, that, that, that an earth-shattering, mind-blowing, soul-saving truth of God dwelling with us, the only way that uh, to understand that is to see that it is a high and exalted God that lowered himself in the extremest way to save us, to be with us. The one who is not of this world has come to this world to be in this world to save the world. And this world is in desperate need of saving. Jesus continues, he says, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. There it is again. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Uh, okay, now something interesting here. In verse 21, if you glance back there in your Bibles, verse 21, Jesus said, You will die in your sin. Singular. And now he says you will die in your sins. Plural. Now, obviously, none of us are so narrow-minded as to limit ourselves to one sin only. Uh, I think most of us are very good at a variety of sins. And the Pharisees here also have many sins that they seem rather adept at. But all of the sins that we see expressed in the Pharisees are in, or, or the, <laughs> all the variety of sins that we see expressed in the world around us or in our own hearts, they are all fruit that has developed from a common root. And so Jesus can accu accurately say your sin or your sins. Sins are developed from a single root sin. Uh, most of the Old Testament traces these manifold sins to the common root of idolatry. It's placing anything in front or above God that doesn't belong there. And guess what? Nothing belongs there. John and other New Testament authors expound on this principle by calling the idolatry unbelief. So the one root sin in the New Testament is usually called unbelief. In John especially, the root sin of all other sins is this lack of faith. The one who does not believe is condemned already. The one who does not believe will die in their sins. Paul picks this up again. He says, whatever is not of faith is sin. So he, he calls that one root sin unbelief. Now the link between idolatry and unbelief, it's fleshed out more in Romans, Romans chapter 1 even, a whole lot of the book of Hebrews if you want to study that principle further. But essentially, by turning away from Jesus, the one true God, they were inevitably placed in the position of worshiping something else. And that's idolatry. I think these Pharisees were worshiping um, their religion, essentially. I think they were worshiping power, which is a common idol. Um, they, they were worshiping themselves, which we are all prone to. But these are all, you know, these are all idolatry that resulted from unbelief. They're two sides of the same coin, but the root bears toxic fruit. The sins that this one sin of idolatrous unbelief, it, it, it produces all the other sins that we're familiar with. Galatians 5.19 says the work of the flesh are, works of the flesh are evident. And then it lists all the behaviors that result from unbelief and idolatry. Jesus is warning these men, and he said it three times now, you're going to die in your sin. They're in danger. And it is their unbelief that is harming them. He says, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. If, if you stay in your state of unbelief, idolatrous unbelief, then you're, you're doomed. 
And then they said to him, they still don't address this, that they don't hear him when he's saying, warning, 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 flashing red lights, you are in danger, which I believe is the most loving thing Jesus could have done to the Pharisees. Jesus treated these men, these wicked men that wanted him dead, he treats them with, with the most loving uh, parental discipline that, that they could handle. He is warning them that they are in danger. And they said to him in verse 25, who are you? Now, this is a really good question, uh, if it's asked with a good heart. You know, there's honest questions, and then there's honest answers. And, and if, if these were honest questions, then it's the really the most important question that you can be asked. Jesus, who are you? That's something each one of you must ask. Who is Jesus? It's a question that must be asked, it's a, it's, and the answer that comes must be heard, it must be considered, and it must be acted upon. And you'll be responsible with that information. But the question changes depending on where you place the emphasis, right? Language is kind of fun like that. Who are you? Who are you? Both of these questions can be good questions. Who are you? Now, but who are you? Now we're getting closer to what the Pharisees are asking the, uh, of Jesus. Remember the other questions they've already asked in this chapter. In chapter 8, verse 19, they said, you know, is he good? they said to themselves, is he going to kill himself? Do they really think that? Is that an honest question? No. I think they're just trying to make Jesus look crazy and unstable, and they're trying to convince themselves that he is like that. Now look back at verse 22. Where is your father? Now he had already told them that his father is God, but what are they getting at? They're referencing the scandal that surrounded his birth. Remember? His mother was pregnant before they were married. Uh-oh. Now we believe in a virgin birth. They didn't. They believe Mary was an immoral woman and Jesus' real father may not have been Joseph. Those aren't honest questions, though. You know, these are, these are weighted questions. Now, now they ask, who are you? And it's really a way of saying, who do you think you are? And Jesus tells them exactly who he is. He is the Son of Man and he is the Son of God. Still in verse 25, and Jesus said to them, just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. He doesn't have any problem repeating himself. Verse 26, I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Now we'll go ahead and read through verse 30. Uh, verse 28 says, then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak, the, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I also do those things that please him. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. So they asked, who are you? And Jesus answers them. He refers to my Father in verse 28, and the Father in verse 29. Everyone has a Father, but there's only one who can be called the Father, and they know what he's getting at. That's God himself. Jesus says, that's my father. The father, the father of creation, the father of our world. That's my father. He identifies himself, once again, as the son of God. And if, if you'll remember the greater context of chapter 8, people are questioning Jesus' authority, as usual. They're saying, why should we believe you? Well, you know, when you say these crazy things about yourself, like, I am the light of the world. Who are you, really? Jesus says, I'm the Son of God. That's who I am. 
This is where my authority comes from. But he also refers to himself as the Son of Man. And we hold these two titles hand in hand. Son of God, Son of Man. The word only begotten used in John 3.16 carries the idea of being a genetic, uh, genetically identical. The only begotten Son of God is identical to God himself, identical to the Father. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus is God's Son. And, and to, to see that he is God a very God, that he looks exactly like God, we're seeing the doctrine of transcendence in that title. He's also the Son of Man. Now, without going into the messianic overtones of this title, which we've looked at in our study in John already, um, the, you know, the very plain and simple idea is that the, the, of the title is that the Son of Man is a man. The Hebrew word for man is actually simply Adam, son of, son of Adam. I mean, that's not what it means in the Greek, but then in Hebrew, the word for man is, is Adam, Adam. Um, just as the Son of God has authority of his Father, to represent his father in every matter and to speak on his behalf and becomes or, and, and, yeah, becomes an ambassador from his father's house, so also the Son of Man represents humanity and becomes an ambassador for the entire human race. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the transcendent God representing his father to the world, coming from heaven, from above, to below, revealing to us the invisible God. Jesus is also the Son of Man. He is one of us. He has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He is among us. He is imminent. And Jesus, the Son of Man, represents our new human race to a holy and just God and says, they're okay, they're with me. The title Son of Man, for which, is, which is Christ's favorite title, favorite way to refer to himself, it's a messianic title taken from Daniel and Ezekiel. When the Son of Man title is, is used in, in Old Testament prophecies, it is of a king or a priest or a prophet, and Jesus fulfills all of those roles. But there's another role that he fulfills as the Son of God and Son of Man, and he refers to it now in John, and that is the role of sacrifice. Read this again. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Jesus is foretelling his death here, but he is promising that by his death, understanding, spiritual understanding, will come. So there's people who do not understand. You can see that in verse 27. And then there's people, there's many people who believe. That's in verse 30. So we've got a contrast. Now, even while there are those persecuting Jesus, these Pharisees, they're challenging Jesus. They're criticizing Jesus. It is actually during that conversation, when all that oppression is going on, that Jesus suddenly becomes believable to the people around listening. It is while Jesus is being attacked that people see him and say, I believe you and I get what you're saying. Now, this is no accident. In fact, it's exactly what Jesus is saying there when he says, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know. Now, as we're in chapter 8, we're already well-versed in the terminology of being lifted up, right? The serpent was lifted up with, for the healing of the nation. But it was also the, the curse, it represented the curse that the nation had, had earned for themselves. The cross is Jesus' serpent moment. He became sin. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. He took the curse that we deserved and he was lifted up 
for our salvation. The idea of being lifted up will be in chapter 12, too, and I'll read this to you. John chapter 12, verse 32, he says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And then the Apostle John includes commentary after this verse, and he says, This he said, signifying by what death he would die. That's important. When he is lifted up, he will draw all peoples, or all nations, to himself. Here in John chapter 8, he says, when you lift up the Son of Man, meaning when you kill the Son of Man, when you lift him up on a cross, they will know that I am he. Jesus is, he, Jesus is who he is on the cross. That was not an afterthought. It was not a side quest. The cross was sought out to as, as a purpose. It was um, uh, something to accomplish. You read that in the in the Mount of Transfiguration practice, Jesus converses with, um, with Elijah and Moses about the death that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. It wasn't just something to endure. It was something to, to win. And it is at the cross where we understand what Jesus' enemies cannot understand. Now, go, it'd be a good idea to turn to 2 Corinthians 4. Uh, 2 Corinthians written by Paul, is very descriptive of what Paul's ministry is like. But as you know, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So it's really one step removed from seeing what Jesus' ministry was like. Now, this shouldn't be a surprise, since the apostles in the church are continuing in Jesus' ministry. But we, we find in 2 Corinthians 4 a, a view of ministry that many of us would shy from, um, but we see a few verses that accurately describe Christ's ministry, Paul's ministry, uh, and then much of the church's ministry afterwards. So there's application here. But 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 3, Paul is writing, he says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Now, doesn't that sound like the Pharisees right now? Jesus is saying very clear things, and they're just missing the point every chance they get. Verse 4, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, the importance of faith, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Now, who does that sound like? Sounds like John is writing here, right? It, it, didn't Jesus just say, I am the light of the world, and here we read that this gospel is hidden or veiled from those who do not believe? Isn't that exactly what we've been teaching, you know, last week, this week? keep reading. Verse 5 says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves our bondservants for Christ's, for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This again is straight out of John. It's just a commentary on the Gospel of John. God commanded light to shine out of darkness into our hearts. That's John chapter 1. And the result was knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus reveals the Father. We come to a knowledge of God through looking at Jesus' face. We behold the, the Christ, and then we see who God is. Jesus is telling the people in John 8, When I am lifted up, then you'll know. You'll know who I am. You'll know who sent me. You'll know the heart of the Father. But Jesus says this will happen specifically when they see him, not as a teacher, not as a good teacher, not as a victorious king, not as a political victor, but as one who is lifted up as a sacrifice. 
And Paul carries this theme into his own ministry. If we keep reading in 2 Corinthians, uh, verse 7 says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. So through this pressing and crushing and persecution and dying, the life of Jesus is manifested. Now it's true that the church, this is true of the church because the church is the body of Christ. Paul had observed that through his pain and through his suffering, Christ was made known. He didn't invent this idea. Jesus designed it that way. He says, when you lift me up, then you'll know. And we see that it's while Jesus is being persecuted uh, by these Pharisees that people believe in him. In John 12, he says, when the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all nations to himself. Now, this makes our task exceptionally clear. We declare the crucified Lord. We declare a God who is transcendent, who is above all things, whose ways are higher than our ways, who is glorious in in every way that we are not, who is holy and good and just. And we see that he is so far beyond us. He is, without, you know, short of a miracle, he is unreachable. And then we see Jesus, who has who, who has tabernacled among us, who has taken on flesh to be with us. And then we see the crux, the little literal cross of history where transcendent God and imminent God, imminent Savior, meet. A cross, it's where things meet. And heaven and earth are reconciled when Christ is lifted up. And it is when Jesus is lifted up as a sacrifice for sin that God is made known. Again, this makes our task exceptionally clear. We must declare the crucified Lord. When the gospel is shared, it has to include the cross. When your Christianity is on display, you must be displaying crucifixion in one way or the other. Jesus, who will never leave you nor forsake you, who is with you always, even to the end of the age, who is humble, who stoops to your level, who is as near as your next breath, who is near to the brokenhearted, who spends time with the sinner, he says, follow me. And then he leads you into the understanding of the high and exalted one, the maker of heaven and earth, the king of kings and lord of lords. And then Jesus says, you will know me in my lowliness, which means we need to declare God in his humility to the world. The world is in need of a close God, and we're in need of a God who is far beyond us, who is above us and who is holy, because that's who God is. And the way we encounter that true and living God is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Let us focus our hearts and our, our attention and our worship on Christ and Him crucified. And let us be among those people in the final verse that believed in Him because we have seen what He has suffered and who he really is. Jesus, you have declared the Father to us. You have declared to us a Father uh, that loves us so much that he would give his only Son. You have declared the Father to us and, and, and given us the warning that without the 
forgiveness and reconciliation that you offer, that is ours through simple faith in you. We just believe you and follow you. Without that, Lord, we are doomed. We would die in our sins. And so, Jesus, we thank you for forgiving our sins. We thank you for providing a way for our sins to be forgiven. We thank you that you have opened our eyes to see these mysteries, and we are humbled before them. We are humbled before the cross, before such wondrous love as this. I pray that your church would be filled with the knowledge of God that is ours in the face of Jesus. Amen. Amen.